0: I know some of you are waiting for the offering, but uh, starting this week, we make a change. We will have our offering after the sermon, uh, just before the Holy Communion. That's to allow us to prepare our hearts, to give, to take time to pray, and then to partake of the Holy Communion as well. Today we continue our study on Matthew, and we look at the parable of a landowner, owner of, as some would say, a grapevine. Let's turn now to Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 to 19. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 to 19. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. Each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, speak your truths to us, that we may understand what you have called us to, that we may understand what it means to be in your Kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Parables of the Kingdom of Heaven are very interesting and yet often perplexing. They're interesting because they tell us, they give us a glimpse of what the Kingdom of God is like. But they're perplexing because they don't tell you exactly A, B, C. They give you an idea, it is like this or it is like that. And then we are left to figure it out, to feel with the story and to figure out what Jesus is talking about. So one of the very perplexing things about this sermon, about this parable, is that we don't know what exactly Jesus was talking about. There are some commentators who say that it is about the Jews and then the Gentiles who came later and the Jews feeling aggrieved that the Gentiles received. That might be one interpretation. But what it tells us, as I think, it wants us to do, as I think, is that it wants us to immerse ourselves into this story. And what I see then in this story are contradictions, contradictions in the Christian life that we have to be aware of. I would like to talk about two contradictions. The first contradiction is about the joy of the Kingdom of Heaven and the pain of the Kingdom of Heaven. It's a paradox. The joy of the Kingdom of Heaven and the pain of the Kingdom of Heaven. Jesus talked about a landowner who went out early in the morning, presumably was before 6, because the sun rises at that time, and probably work starts at 6 in the morning. And so he went out there and he saw workers, and he then bargained with them and offered them a denarius. According to most commentators, a denarius is a very reasonable or generous offer. It is a daily wage for a soldier, and so for a labourer, it's probably more than that. Someone calculated that the subsistence cost for, um, for a labourer and his family would be one denarius for five days. And so a denarius for one day's work was about reasonable, because you pay for all the necessities and you have something left. But denarius was certainly generous enough. And so in the first first round, early in the morning, he got got them, a group of people, to work. Subsequently then, as he went out to look, he saw more workers and he invited them. And even at five o'clock, just one hour before closing time, he saw again a group of people unemployed and he asked them, why aren't you working? And they said, nobody has employed me. Now this is about the pain of unemployment on the one hand. I wonder how many of you have been unemployed, not by choice, but because you've been searching and searching and you've not found found a job. It is a very frustrating, very despairing thought before COVID, if we were to go near the causeway, or at certain points in Singapore, we could probably see foreign workers lined up or gathered around waiting for the, the employers to come and pick them up. And one would always wish that you were the first, because once you have gotten employed, you don't have to worry the rest of the day. But imagine if you weren't picked the first pick, you weren't picked second either, and you waited several hours to be picked. Now the anxiety is really great, especially when you have to feed an entire family. What if no one employs me? As the day grows later and later, your chances of getting employed grows dimmer and dimmer. Five o'clock, one hour before time up, who's going to employ you? And so the lucky ones would be the ones who are employed first. Start work at six o'clock, guaranteed a salary, guaranteed one denarius. Wasn't that such a great thing? And yet when they saw and it was a reasonable offer. And yet when they saw what happened at the last, when those who worked just one hour got the same pay, they were upset. Why? Because they felt that they had worked much harder. And I think I would have felt exactly that way too. But think of it in both ways. Sure, working from 6 to 6, 6 in the morning to 6 in the afternoon, was hard work, as they said. In verse 12, you made have those who worked um, though these who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. The work wasn't easy. Sure, they were guaranteed a salary, but the work throughout the day was a difficult job. They bore the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Which would have been better? Unemployed? Waiting for 11 hours before getting employed? or getting employed right away and working so hard, slogging away, but knowing that you have a job. It's a huge conundrum, isn't it? And some of you may feel it also. I mean, especially when you, you, you ask yourself, should I work, shouldn't I work? Um, you want to rest. Some of us older people, we want to retire. And yet, as we look at our needs, See, want to retire also cannot retire. I remember a few months ago, a, a young, young pastor came to me and said, Pastor, you've worked as a pastor for 28 years. How did you manage to do it so long? And then I looked at him very sagely and I rubbed my chin and I said, after, 24, after serving for 28 years, it's been a long time. But whenever I look at my bank account, I wish I could serve, work another 15 years necessity. But which is better, to work or not to work? To work very hard or to wait anxiously for a job? It's quite similar to the Christian life. On the one hand, God invites us to a life of rest. William, uh, in his prayer, told us to meditate on Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Which means that the Christian life is a life of an easy yoke. That means you will not be slave-driven. It is a life of a light burden. You will not be weighed down by all your worries. And that's so true of the Christian life. It is also the life where it is like a treasure, Treasure that a man found, and when he saw that treasure, he was filled with joy. And hid it, and he just wanted nothing but that treasure. Or the pearl of great value, where the merchant wanted nothing but that pearl. That is how precious the life of a Christian is. It's full of joy, it's full of excitement, it's full of lightness of the heart. And all this is promised to us. And yet, on the other side, Jesus also says, take the narrow road, for the people who take that narrow road are few, but it is the narrow road that leads to life, and the broad road where many people go will lead to destruction. It's almost like a flip side that while there is a promise of great joy, there is a warning that we need to take a difficult road It is that road where Jesus says you cannot serve money and God, for you will love one and hate the other. Which basically means that if you want a life full of joy and rest and little worry, you will have to be prepared to surrender the wealth, so that it will no longer hold you in bondage. Now That's a difficult life indeed. But in order to take that life of light burden and easy yoke, you have to recognise what you're bound by. And if you're bound by ambition and your wealth and all these things, then you will not enter and you will struggle because you have to take one and give up the other or take the other and give this one up. And it is a struggle. But the Christian life also calls, involves persecution. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, brother will betray brother to death, son will betray father to death, and father will betray son to death. That there is a point of great disagreement. And here in this passage, in chapter verse 17, Jesus says, we are going, in verse 18, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Following Jesus was meant to be the way of of peace, meant to be the way of joy, of goodness, of God's presence. But it also comes with persecution and people had to know that. These were the two sides of it, great conundrum. We wish it was that easy just to follow Jesus. But in order to follow Jesus and have that life that Jesus offers us, We must let go of the things that hold us and be prepared for rejection by others. It is toil, it is hard work, it is surrender, it is sacrifice. The reality is that the Kingdom of Heaven is a beautiful thing. The Kingdom of Heaven is that treasure that gives great joy. But in order to take that treasure, we have to give up our lives that's the first contradiction about the labor about the kingdom of heaven that's implied in this story which is worse going to work guaranteed work but working very hard or having the uncertainty in our christian life which is better having a life that's full of god right from the start or worrying every moment about your life but holding all that you want with you. The second contradiction has to do with righteousness and mercy. Righteousness and God's mercy. The landowner had to watch over his profits and his losses as well, as well as a sense of fairness to his workers. And so on the one hand, he had to make sure that he didn't overspend on all his labourers, he had to make sure that there were few, very few labourers, enough labourers to do the harvest, but not so many that he had to spend all his money paying the salaries. That's on the one hand. And so when he employed workers in the morning, that was wise. When he employed workers at 9 o'clock, maybe even at 12 o'clock, that was wise because he needed reinforcements. But when he employed workers at 5 o'clock just before closing time, not because they were desperate and urgent. It didn't say that he was desperate for the harvest. He simply saw them milling around and said, Hey, you got job or not? No job? Why? Nobody employed you or come and work for me. It was almost like charity. Almost like mercy and compassion on those who are not employed. And he showed it at the end. Because at the end of the day, he paid even the ones who worked one hour a full day's wage. And a generous full day's wage instead. Indeed. Wouldn't that have been an overdo of mercy? Wasn't he then giving more than he could afford, simply because he was merciful? Did he look at his balance sheets and see if he could afford that? But what was worse was that he would seem to be unfair to the other labourers. The labourers who had worked early, from early in the morning, and so they were upset. And they felt this is unjust, this is, this is unfair. Why should should this landowner pay the ones who worked last, just worked an hour, the same wage as he pays us? And so the landowner was faced with this difficult decision as well as a conundrum. He, on the one hand, he was generous. He wanted to be generous to his workers, to give them whatever he felt like giving. On the other hand, he had to watch to see that those, there would be no sense of unfairness, and that he would not be overpaying some of his workers. It is quite the same in God's Kingdom as well. On the one hand, God is very generous. On the one hand, He welcomes sinners all the time. He tells them, come, come and be with me. The Father welcomes you. He's almost indulgent. He doesn't keep whacking the sinners. He doesn't keep telling the poor and the sinners, the sinful people that you have sinned, you have sinned. He doesn't rub the faces in the mud. On the other hand, Jesus also said that I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfil the law and every dot of the law will be fulfilled by me. How then does Jesus balance the two? And what are the consequences of being all generous and all merciful and all compassionate, and yet maintaining the law? And this is the consequence, as we can see. In verse 18, he says, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. These were the ones who wanted to maintain the law, and when they saw that Jesus was generous with the lawbreakers, they were offended. They couldn't understand how Jesus could forgive, and forgive, and even be with the sinners. And they were offended. And he said, they will condemn him to death. But in verse 19, it says, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles were just the opposite side. They were the ones who were not keeping the law. They were not people of the law. And they were the ones whom Jesus was being kind to. And yet, they would be the ones who would mock him, and flog him, and crucify him. Why? Because Jesus spoke of the law, he demanded righteousness as well. And for Jesus to walk that line of righteousness and mercy, people on both sides hated him. The ones who wanted righteousness hated him for his compassion. The ones whom he was compassionate with hated him because he said, you need, the law is for you, righteousness is important for your life. A good example of this is in the death of John the Baptist and the life of Jesus. Jesus and John the Baptist were the very close cousins and they were always on the same track. In fact, Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived. And so they both were obeying God. But what was it? John J- Jesus was a friend of the sinners and the tax collectors. He wasn't just drinking in the bar, handing out tracts. I mean that's easy, one time I go and hand tracts. But he says that he was a friend of sinners. Now being a friend is different from one who just hands out tracts and says, believe in Jesus. The one who is a friend has commitment, he is loyal. When you say you are a friend to someone, it means that you will follow that person, you journey with that person, whether they are good, they are bad, whether they fail or they succeed. You are their friend. And it says Jesus was a friend of sinners, meaning that he had probably no timeline and he never mentioned that he had any timeline for them to change. He befriended them and some of them were changed by him. Someone like Zacchaeus was changed by him. But how many others whom he befriended took a long time to change? It wasn't an instant conversion. And Jesus journeyed with them. He was a friend of sinners he kept company with sinners. Now that offended all the righteous Pharisees. And one can understand why. Can you imagine looking at your rabbi, your teacher, and saying, this is bad influence. Not only does he eat and drink with sinners, he is their friend. What bad influence that would be. And isn't there a timeline? Shouldn't he give them a deadline where if they get converted within one year, maybe he can continue to be their friend. But if they don't, if they don't get transformed within a year, maybe he should... Stop being the friend. But Jesus had no timeline. And this very much offended the teachers of the law and the Pharisees for good reason. How do you keep order in our religion when you keep friends who are consistently sinners? That was offensive. And Jesus offended. He did not do it deliberately, but by loving sinners, He was offensive to the good people. But John the Baptist was just the opposite. King Herod wanted him to endorse his his immoral relationship with his sister-in-law, his brother's sister Herodias, and insisted that John the Baptist tell him that it's good. But John the Baptist says, you are in sin. Here was a man who was a sinner, and God loves sinners, and yet this man wanted John the Baptist to twist, to bend the law, that he might feel vindicated. And John the Baptist refused to do so. He maintained that what, John, what Herod was doing was immoral, was sinful. And for that, King Herod killed John the Baptist. It's almost like there's no win. There, there's only you, you do one side, you're damned. You do the other side, you're damned. You're too merciful, you're damned by the righteous. You keep righteousness and you're damned by the sinful. Not a very wise strategy, but that is the line that Jesus drew, righteousness and mercy. What does that mean to our church? When you talk then about compassion, what I want, what we want, is to bring in sinners of all kinds, and not make them feel uncomfortable, but make them feel at home, and to say, it doesn't matter, let's all get to know the Lord. Whether you are moral, you're immoral, whatever you're doing, whether you're super rich or super poor, whether you're very generous or you're stingy, all come together and let's get to know our God together. And we set no deadlines. And that's a good thing too. And of course, people who would rather have order in the church would be offended. Because why are you bringing sinners into the church? Why are you welcoming them and not rubbing their faces in the mud and telling them, you're sinful, you're sinful, but rather to say, let's just get to know the Lord. And yet, on the other side, to refuse to say that sin is good, that dark is bright, that black is white. We come to a point when we say, yes, we will welcome you, we will love you with all our hearts, but we cannot say to you that your sin is not sin, or that your darkness is light. And that's where the struggle of the church is, and that's where we have to come together to work it through. But that's the conundrum that we face. Welcome and the generosity of God, and the righteousness, not because we are self righteous, but because we know that this is the way that leads to life, and we cannot bend that. And we will help those who want to know to grow to see what is right and what is wrong. We don't want to rub the faces in it because we ourselves are sinful. We struggle with a whole lot of other sins ourselves and we don't want anyone to rub our faces into it. But one thing stands clear, we cannot say that sin is not sin. I love this parable because it resonates with me, it tells me the struggles that I have, that we have as a church. The struggle of wanting to follow Jesus because it's a way of peace. It is the way of the light burden and the easy yoke. It is a life of freedom. But I struggle too because there are things in my life that I will not let go. And I think there are things in our lives that we will not let go. We pray that day by day we may begin to let go because the, the joy of knowing God of receiving that kingdom far exceeds the things that we hold in our hearts. In the meantime, we understand how we each struggle with that. It resonates with me because on the one hand, I see the generosity of God that welcomes everyone, regardless of how sinful you are, regardless of how you live your life, to say, let's not look at each other's sin. Let's look to God and let's see God do His work, and see how good our God is. But at some point, we still have to say, we will not, we will not say that sin is not sin. That unrighteousness is righteousness. And as we journey that road, it sometimes seems very foolish, because we offend both sides. And Jesus walked that road, and it seems so foolish Because he had enemies on both sides, he had enemies on the righteous and he had enemies on the unrighteous. Jesus walked that line because he knew that that was the way to God. And we, as a church, learn to draw to walk that line too. Line of compassion, the line of righteousness. Let us pray. Father, temper our expectations of your kingdom. Because on the one hand, we swing to the extreme and say that life with you is just full of joy. And on the other side, we swing and we say that life of discipleship is full of pain. Help us to realise that being in your kingdom is both joy and pain. It is joy because that promise that you gave us of water, living water flowing from within us is true. And you keep that promise. It is joy because when we give ourselves to you and we, and we place our burdens upon you, you do lift our burdens. And you do lead us We're into green pastures and still waters. It is also true that we need to surrender the things that hold us, the things that bind us. The chains that hold us and keep us away from eternal life that you offer to us. Help us then to recognize this conflict within our lives and then, Lord, to allow you to transform us, to draw us to yourself, that our longing for life with you may far exceed the longing for the life in the world. But help us, Lord, as we struggle with this, that we may also help one another and understand each other in our struggles. Father, you show us too that it's your mercy, that you are merciful. You are so merciful, Lord, that you would receive any sinner and you would wait for the sinner to repent and you will continue to love the sinner. Help us to realise too that out of your love you will not allow us to call sin righteousness. Out of your deep love for us, you will not allow us to say that darkness is light or black is white. Because Lord, all that you really want is for us to walk in that light and really live. Help us, Lord, to walk that line also. That we may be a church that is righteous, that longs to do the right thing, but this is also a church that welcomes sinners into our midst. Come, Lord, and work among us. That even in so doing, Lord, our hearts are broken. For you say that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. But as we walk that line and as we face rejection from the left and from the right, we may find comfort and strength from you to keep walking. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.